Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. People were tormented by hunger, and many starved to death. There was no fresh water to drink, only stagnant water and the brine of the lake, and many people died of dysentery. The only food was lizards, swallows, corn cobs, and the salt grasses of the lake. The people also ate water lilies and seeds, and chewed on deer hides and pieces of leather. They roasted and seared and scorched whatever they could, and ate it. They ate the bitterest weeds and even dirt. Nothing can compare with the horrors of that siege and the agonies of the starving. We were so weakened by hunger that little by little the enemy forced us to retreat. Little by little they forced us to the wall. Miguel Leon Portilla The Broken Spears A couple of quick announcements before we get started. First off, if you missed the announcement I put out, There is now a Portuguese version of the podcast. You can find it by searching for Historia da América Latina wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Mateus Menezes who has taken on the job of translating the episodes. If you would like to listen in Portuguese or know someone who would, check it out. The second thing I want to mention is that the historian and anthropologist Miguel Leon Portilla, whose work has been so helpful for this series on the conquest of Mexico, as well as being so generally interesting, died last week at the age of 93. Over the course of his career, he published countless books and articles which examined Mesoamerican society, and his efforts have been invaluable in helping us understand what these societies were like, and how they function. Besides the quality of his work, Leon Portilla's contribution to the history of Mesoamerica is in my opinion so important because of the approach he took. Obviously I'm biased coming from an anthropological background, but I think much can be learned from history by taking a more ethnographic view of past events. Sure, that may be less useful when looking at recent European history for example, but to really understand what was going on when looking at cultures as different to those of the West as the Aztec were, you really have to try to get inside their ways of understanding the world, to make sense of the events. The discipline of history is a product of the Western Academy. There's nothing wrong with that. Its approach can tell you what happened and when. But it can't fully tell you why those things happened when dealing with subjects like the conquest of Mexico. 
it can't tell you how the people of Mesoamerica interpreted those events. Leon Portilla dedicated himself to filling in these gaps in the historical record, and our understanding of Mesoamerica is much richer for it. I can't recommend enough The Broken Spears, his Aztec account of the conquest, but if you want to read more of his many works, Nahuatl Thought and Culture, a study of the ancient Nahuatl mind, El Reverso de la Conquista, and Time and Reality in the Thought of the Maya, are all good places to start. Cortes's battered force staggered into Tlaxcala, where they were given refuge and the time they needed to regroup and plan their next move. It was a complex position they found themselves in. On the one hand, they had just suffered a defeat, being forced to flee Tenochtitlan. They had lost men, and there would be no charming or scheming their way back into a favourable position, as they had done when they first arrived in Tenochtitlan. On the other hand, despite their losses, they still had Narvaez's extra troops, and they had severely disrupted the Aztec state. Not only had the emperor died, but the very office had been compromised. The Aztec understanding of the world must have been shaken by everything that had happened, and even if the Spanish had just left at this point, the empire surely would have entered a period of re-evaluation and turmoil as it tried to explain what had happened since the Spanish turned up. On top of this, for the Spanish, despite having basically just run for their lives, they had still managed to win the Battle of Otumba. This showed that they still had substantial military power. While some Spaniards would probably have thought that it was now time to call it a day, or at least leave Mexico for now and return later, there were some reasons to think that the project was not completely lost. A new strategy would be needed, but look at what they had achieved already. Of course, Tlaxcala was not entirely the safe and friendly haven that their status as allies of the Spanish suggested. Mashish Cattle and Xicoten Cattle were still the two most powerful rulers within Tlaxcala, and they were still engaged in their own political rivalry. Xicoten Cattle the Younger was still around, and he still had his anti-Spanish opinions. The Spanish stayed with Mashish Cattle. He welcomed them, despite the fact that his daughter, who had been married to Velázquez de León, had died with Velázquez on the way out of Tenochtitlan. It's unclear if the Spanish knew this, but Chico Tencatl the Younger had recently been approached by Aztec emissaries who wanted to turn the Tlaxcalans against them. He was already of the view that this is what they should do, and so he tried to persuade the rest of the Tlaxcalan leadership that they should take advantage of the opportunity they now had to massacre the Spanish. They were weakened, and just sitting there in Mashish Cattle's palace, it would be easy to get rid of them once and for all. He was unable to persuade Mashish Cattle and his father, but the Tlaxcalans did decide to use the Spaniards' weakness to demand more from them. The Spanish were not in a position to refuse. Should the conquest of the Aztec be successful, the Tlaxcalans were to be given the great city of Cholula to rule as well as a few other pieces of land, 
and they would be given a large share of the loot that would come from the conquest. Cortes decided that if he was to dispel the doubts among both his own men and those of Tlaxcala, he would have to go on the offensive straight away. He would have to start off making small steps, but if he could rebuild the momentum with some victories, the situation would start to look less dire. He began by attacking several small Aztec border towns, all of which he defeated successfully. He made the town of Tepeyaca his base, fortifying it and renaming it Villa de Segura de la Frontera, which basically means the town of border security. There was no confusion about the purpose of this place then. It sat on the edge of Aztec territory, along the best route between Tenochtitlan and Tlaxcala. After each successful battle, Cortes decided to use extreme repression to send a message to the surrounding towns and to the Aztec. There were massacres and mass enslavements. The brutality he allowed his men to employ probably helped them excise some of the trauma they had suffered during the Noche Triste and bring them back on his side. He did all this very quickly, and in the space of about three weeks, he had taken a large swathe of Aztec territory. The Aztecs seemed not to have had the time to respond and send troops to defend it. Cortes gained a small and slightly amusing boost at this point as well. You see, Velázquez, back in Cuba, was not the only Spanish governor in the Caribbean who wanted to bring Mexico under his control. The governor of Jamaica had similar ideas. He appears not to have been aware of Cortes's expedition, and so he sent a small force to colonise a spot on the coast, just a bit further north than Villarica. Upon their arrival, they discovered Cortes's settlement, before continuing to found their own as planned. They were badly prepared, and there were nowhere near enough of them, so soon they had to be rescued by Cortes's men back in Villarica. They elected to stay and join his expedition. Having not heard anything, the governor of Jamaica sent another ship, who also discovered Villarica, and also stayed with Cortes. Whenever the governor started to wonder what had happened, he sent another ship, and by the end six had turned up, all of which joined Cortes, providing him with a small but steady stream of men and supplies. Cortes also had a growing coalition of indigenous allies. Most of these had become allies through being defeated by him. However, small groups of Aztec tributary peoples in the region did also start to defect. These were largely small towns and groups of people, but it wasn't long before, thanks to some clever political scheming, he won over one of the most important cities in the Aztec Empire. You might remember from the episodes on the pre-contact Aztec that the core of the empire was actually an alliance of three separate cities. Tenochtitlan and the Mexica who lived there were in practice the leaders, However, the cities of Tlacopan, where the Spanish had regrouped after escaping Tenochtitlan, and Texcoco, were technically equal partners to the Mexica. Tlacopan was on the western shore of the lake, and Texcoco 
was on the east. Just before the Spanish arrived, there had been a dispute when the ruler of Texcoco died, and his two sons both tried to succeed him. While one of the two had ended up in control, the matter had not really been settled, and the other one approached Cortes. If Cortes would put him in control of Texcoco, he would join them against the Aztec. This was massive for several reasons. Firstly, it gave Cortes a large cohort of new troops, while also taking those troops away from the Aztec. Secondly, it gave him a base on the shores of the lake. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, was how it looked. Texcoco was part of that original Triple Alliance. It was a fundamental component of the empire. If Tenochtitlan could not keep control of it, then where did the empire stand politically? What were smaller, geographically more distant cities to make of this? Was the empire a sinking ship, which even its most powerful and privileged parts were abandoning? It was six months after the Noche Triste, and Cortes had turned everything around. He gathered his various allies together, and marched back to Tenochtitlan. On arrival in Texcoco, he was joined by the defectors there, and started planning their next move. Once again, for all his faults, Cortes had proved that he was an exceedingly capable leader of men. Now everything I've just said is true. Few people would have been able to hold things together and turn them around in the way that Cortes did. However, he also did get very lucky. I have only really given one side of the story of the last six months. You may have noticed that the Aztec did pretty much nothing during that story. Well, there was a reason for that. In The Broken Spears, Portilla describes how immediately after the Noche Triste, the Aztecs started repairing the damage done to their city and probably their political systems and institutions as well. They continued with their religious activities and intended to put the whole episode of the Spanish arrival behind them. Soon, however, Mesoamerica was hit by an outbreak of smallpox. And as the most densely populated place in the region, Tenochtitlan was hit the hardest. Perhaps Cortes's most powerful and decisive weapon was the one he had no control of, the one he had brought by mistake. It's almost an anticlimax to the story, as well as of course being a great human tragedy, that in the end, this is arguably the factor which will determine the rest of the conquest. Disease was of course one of the most damaging aspects of the colonial era in general, and people all over the world died in huge numbers of things as small as the common cold, due to not having immunity to them. Smallpox was deadly even to Europeans, but it was much more so to the indigenous people. There are different estimates of exactly what proportion of the Aztec population died, but it was a lot, and it hindered any attempt to press home their advantage after the Noche Triste. It's also probably the reason that when Cortes started his new offensive from Tlaxcala, the Aztec were unable to respond. The disease probably arrived with Narvaez, and it came to Tenochtitlan 
with Cortez when he returned there. It will kill Mash's cattle in Tlaxcala. It will kill the rulers of Tlacopan and of Cholula. It even killed the ruler of the Tarascan people, who lived to the northwest of the Aztec Empire, and who had played no part in the conquest or had no real contact with the Spanish. It also killed Cuitlacuac, the emperor who had been chosen to replace Moctezuma. He was supposed to be the leader who would fix all the Aztec problems and drive out the Spanish. Instead, he ruled for about 80 days. He was replaced by Cuatemoc, his and Moctezuma's cousin. So Cortes was now on the shores of the lake, looking across at Tenochtitlan. Despite the rapid progress he had made, and the chaos that the smallpox had caused, getting inside would still be no easy task. He could not take it in one attack. He would have to settle for a siege. If the lake and its causeways had trapped him within the city and made their escape difficult during the Noche Triste, now they could be used partially to his advantage. While they made it very difficult for him to assault the city, they also meant that the inhabitants were stuck inside. Cortes destroyed some of the newly repaired causeways, just as the Aztec had done. He also destroyed the aqueduct, which stretched across the lake and provided the city with fresh water. The rest of the settlements surrounding the lake were quickly subdued, and his army spread out so that they could keep an eye on Tenochtitlan from all sides. Cortes had another trick up his sleeve as well. While in Tlaxcala, he had ordered the building of new boats. The pieces were made there and then brought to Texcoco to be assembled. These not only gave him the ability to cross the lake and attack the city, but also to stop the Aztec from making quick trips across the lake to get water and supplies in their own boats, something he would not have been able to fully prevent from land alone. Over the coming months, there were several battles, both on the causeways as the Spanish tried to advance across them, and on the lake itself, as the two sides attacked each other with their boats. At times the Spanish would manage to get across the causeways and establish footholds in the outskirts of the city. When that happened, there would be brutal battles of attrition, as each block of the city was painfully fought over. The Aztec came out to engage in battle as well. There were attacks by large forces, as well as lots of smaller raids. In June, about a month into the siege, they launched their biggest attack yet. The Spanish had divided their men into three groups, and the Aztecs simultaneously attacked all three of them. One of the groups was led by Cortes, one by de Alvarado, and one by de Sandoval. The force led by de Alvarado was inside the city at the time, but he was forced to retreat back across the causeway to Tlacopan. It was almost a year to the day, since he'd had to do exactly the same thing on exactly the same causeway on the Noche Triste. He escaped, but he was wounded as he did so. Soon afterwards, Cortes launched a counterattack and managed to push deep into the city. He had gone too far too quickly, however, and he had to retreat. He too was wounded in this incident, 
and he almost ended up being captured. He was saved by one of his conquistadors, Cristobal de Olid. Things were at a stalemate, with neither side being able to make a decisive move. However, the lack of supplies was starting to have an impact on the Aztec. Very quickly, their attacks started to become riskier, as they found themselves in a desperate position. They could no longer afford to attack at sensible moments. They needed to break out quickly. Cortes realised this, and so he stopped launching attacks. It didn't make sense to lose men. While the Aztecs were the defenders of the city, the situation had flipped, and they became the attackers. The Spanish simply had to defend their positions and keep the blockade in place. Having already lost huge numbers of people to the smallpox, people inside the city started to die of starvation, or from disease having drunk the dirty water, which was all that was available to them. Eventually, it was too much, and the Spanish realised that they could start advancing. It still took a great deal of effort to slowly capture the city street by street, but they managed to do so without major setbacks. The Aztec leadership and army found themselves encircled in an ever-shrinking section of the city, and eventually Cuauhtémoc agreed to surrender. According to the Florentine Codex, the day before another omen was sighted by the Aztec, an enormous fireball that rained down sparks. To them, this was the signal that it was over. It was the 13th of August, 1521, and the siege had lasted just over three months. The conquest as a whole had lasted about two and a half years. That was the end of Aztec power, and Spain would not lose control of Tenochtitlan again until Mexican independence 300 years later. The victors went on a rampage, and as if enough had not already died from illness, starvation and fighting, many more were killed by Spanish and Tlaxcalan soldiers. There are no agreed-upon numbers for the casualties, but if you include everyone on all sides throughout the conquest to this point, they are in the hundreds of thousands. The city was in ruins, and what had not been destroyed of its great temples quickly was demolished by Cortes, as he imposed Christianity upon the population. Cuauhtémoc was imprisoned, but he will still play a small part in future events. In some ways, the brutal and difficult nature of the conquest worked in Cortes's favour in the long run. Although it had been difficult, the Aztec were now exhausted. There was no chance of rebellion any time soon, as their population and their will to fight had been so badly damaged. Cortes had broken the back of the job of conquering Mesoamerica. There was nobody as powerful as the Aztec. However, there was still a lot more to do. In terms of territory actually under his control, all he had was a strip of land from Villarica to Tenochtitlan, and as he had been so focused on fighting, even that had little in the way of administration and control. 
He had a large collection of towns and cities that had agreed to be his allies and tributaries, but he had only founded two towns, Via Rica and Via de la Segura de la Frontera. They had not even seen much of the Aztec Empire, so while all of its territory was now nominally under his control, in practice, they couldn't really say that they were. There were also other large states which would need conquering. His job was not yet over. Next time, Cortes will send his men out in all directions to conquer new land, and he will set about the task of working out how to actually govern the places he'd just conquered. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelled M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM and if you've liked the show you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes alternatively if you visit the website you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos most of these are my own taken during my time in Latin America all these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop you can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo that's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening.